Let's pray, and we'll ask God for his help. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to look now at your word. We pray that as we look at this magnificent passage that you will thrill us with hope. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Australian Financial Review did an interview recently with a guy by the name of Steve Wozniak. I'm not sure if that's the right um, pronunciation, but Steve, he is the co-founder of the Apple Computer Company. In the interview, Steve was asked, what's your vision for the future? What's your vision for the future? Steve Wozniak's answer was this. Like people including Stephen Hawking and Elon Musk have predicted, I agree that the future is scary and very bad for people, he says. Computers are going to take over from humans, no question. He says, if we build these devices to take care of everything for us, eventually they'll think faster than us and they'll get rid of the slow humans to run companies more efficiently. And he finishes by saying this, I fear that we will become mere pets to our computers. Pets to our computers. Just excuse me. Pets to our computers. To most, to most people, the future of this world looks pretty bleak. In fact, I have to say the idea of being pets to our computers is probably on the scale of uh, visions of the future. It's a fairly benign one. It's probably one of the more positive visions of the future. Uh, the idea of being a pet to my computer doesn't stress me that much, as long as I get a regular feed and it pats me occasionally or something like that, it should be all right. Um, many people are far more negative about the future than that. Uh, most people would say that a more likely scenario is that we'll descend into chaos with overpopulation, there'll be starvation, with destruction of the oceans and the forests, with global warming, with glacial melting and so on. Uh, that's on a world scale, a dark, dark future. But it's also pretty dark on an individual scale. On an individual scale, most people are unsure about their future. Maybe have some vague idea of an afterlife, some hope that things will be all right, or maybe they think that death is the end. Either way, it doesn't look too hopeful. And so with the future being so dark at a world level and at an individual level, most people, what they do is they just make themselves so busy with the present that they don't have to think about the future. That they try not to think about it. In fact, the website of Oprah Winfrey says that that is the best, most healthy thing you can do. If you think about the future, according to Oprah, it will leave you feeling hopeless. So, don't think about it. Let me quote. Stop! And think about what's happening right now. Is this moment hopeless? Don't answer that question. <laughs> the present is here. Every moment, every day, when the future is gone and you live fully alive here and now, you put an end to hopelessness. There you go. Now, most people try not to think about the future. And for those who do think about the future, those who do so realistically, well, it is, it is pretty hopeless. I, I, I have to say I like Woody Allen's take on it. He said this. There's an old joke. Um, two elderly women are at a Catskill mountain resort and one of them says, boy, the food at this place is really terrible. The other one says, yeah, I know, and such small portions. Oh, man, come on. 
food is really terrible. And such small portions. Do you have to be Jewish to get that joke? <laughs> uh, well, that's essentially, says Woody Allen, that's essentially how I feel about life. Life is full of misery, loneliness and suffering. And it's all over much too soon. Uh, philosophy professor Peter Kreeft summarises modern man's hopeless vision of the future this way. He says, in an age of hope, men looked at the night sky and saw the heavens. In an age of hopelessness, they call it simply space. What's your vision of the future? Your vision for the future? Is it, is it unknown? Is it scary or very bad, like Steve Wozniak says? Is it your destiny to be a, a computer's pet or, or something worse? Do you try not to think about it? Do you feel unsure about the future? Worried, even despairing about the future? Is there any hope for the future? In this next section of Jeremiah, God gives Jeremiah a vision. A vision for Israel's future. And it's a vision that is picked up by the New Testament, picked up by Jesus himself. In fact, the longest quote of the Old Testament in the New Testament is from this passage that we're looking at today. The New Testament loves this passage because it is a magnificent, magnificent vision of the future. Let's have a look. Uh, Historically, uh, we're moving now to the very end of Jeremiah's ministry. The year is around about 587 BC. And and all of the terrible things that Jeremiah has been predicting for the last 29 chapters, historically for the last 40 years, all of the terrible things that Jeremiah has been predicting for the last 40 years have now happened. Nebuchadnezzar has come. He's conquered Babylon. He's conquered uh, Jerusalem, sorry. He's conquered Jerusalem for a second time. And this time, he's left nothing standing. He's destroyed the city. He's pulled down the walls. He's demolished the temple. He's demolished the palace. He's stolen anything valuable that was there. He has killed tens and tens of thousands of Jews. He's taken many Jews off into exile in Babylon. There is hardly anyone left in Judah or Jerusalem. And there is no king. And there is no administration. Basically, the country of Judah has ceased to exist at this point. But now, right now, when everything seems lost, when everything seems hopeless, God asks Jeremiah to write down another series of prophecies. There's hardly anyone left for him to say the prophecies to. And these prophecies, they're not going to come true for a lifetime. Jeremiah himself is going to be long dead by the time these prophecies come true. So he has to write it all down now. God says that he's going to do something unparalleled in human history. For the first time, a people who have been conquered and taken into exile, their integrity as a race will be maintained in exile. And then God will bring them back to the promised land. And the promise is not just for the tribe of Judah, it's for all the tribes of Israel. It even includes the Israelites who were conquered more than 100 years before by the Assyrian Empire. Have a look with me. Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 1. Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Write in a book all the words I've spoken to you. The days are coming, declares the Lord when I will bring my people Israel and Judah back from captivity and restore them to the land I gave their forefathers to possess, says the Lord. And so now we move into this series of prophecies. Our first prophecy pictures Babylon in deep distress. Babylon is being attacked, is being defeated in a terrifying battle. 
It's a dangerous battle for the Jewish people who are there, who are there in Babylon. But God says, you'll be rescued. And Babylon's, your slavery to Babylon will be broken. And you will serve God under a king from the line of David. And you will live in peace and security. And so says God, you don't have to be afraid. Pick it up in verse 4. Chapter 30, verse 4. These are the words the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. This is what the Lord says. Speaking about Babylon now. Cries of fear are heard. Terror, not peace. Ask and see. Can a man bear children? Then why do I see every strong man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Every face turned deathly pale. How awful that day will be. None will be like it. It'll be a time of trouble for Jacob, but he will be saved out of it. And that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will break the yoke off their necks and I will tear off their bonds. No longer will foreigners enslave them. Instead, they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. So do not fear, O Jacob, my servant. Do not be dismayed, O Israel, declares the Lord. I will surely save you out of a distant place. Your descendants from the land of their exile, Jacob will again have peace and security. And no one will make him afraid. That's the picture. Babylon defeated. Peace at last. Next prophecy. The next prophecy, the image is of Judah being sick and injured. It's like they've been devoured because of their sin, eaten by some kind of a wild beast. Verse 12. This is what the Lord says. Your wound is incurable. Your injury beyond healing. But God says that he's going to slay the wild beast of Babylon. He's going to, uh, Dr. God is going to restore Judah to health. Verse 16. But all who devour you will be devoured. All your enemies will go into exile. Those who plunder you will be plundered. All who make spoil of you I will despoil. But I will restore you to health and heal your wounds, declares the Lord. Babylon defeated, Israel healed. Uh, Next prophecy, next prophecy, God says that Jerusalem will be rebuilt. They will again have a homegrown ruler and they will sing. They will sing to God with joy and with thanks. Verse 18, this is what the Lord says, I will restore the fortunes of Jacob's tents and have compassion on his dwellings. The city will be rebuilt on her ruins and the palace will stand in its proper place. From them will come songs of thanksgiving and the sound of rejoicing. I will add to their numbers and they'll not be decreased. I will bring them honour and they will not be disdained. Their children will be as in days of old and their community will be established before me. I will punish all who oppress them. Their leader will be one of their own. Their ruler will arise from among them. I will bring him near and he'll come close to me. For who is he who will devote himself to be close to me, declares the Lord. So you will be my people And I will be your God. God says he'll destroy their enemies. He'll save and bless his people. And they will be overjoyed. Pick it up in chapter 31, verse 4. 31.4. I will build you up again and you will be rebuilt, O virgin Israel. Again, you'll take up your tambourines and go out to dance with the joyful. Again, you'll plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The farmers will plant them and enjoy their fruit. There will be a day when watchmen cry out on the hills of Ephraim, Come! Let's go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. This is what the Lord says. Sing with joy for Jacob. Shout for the foremost of the nations. I come down to verse 12. 
They will come and shout for joy on the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine and the oil, the young of the flocks and herds. They'll be like a well-watered garden and they will sorrow no more. Then maidens will dance and be glad. Young men and old as well, I will turn their mourning into gladness. I'll give them comfort and joy instead of sorrow. Babylon defeated. Israel healed, restored, rejoicing. Here's the vision of the future. Next prophecy. And next prophecy, God pictures Rachel. Um, now, Rachel, historically, is, if you go way back to Genesis, she is the wife of Israel, the wife of Jacob. And so her children are the children of Israel. And so here she's used metaphorically to mean Israel. Uh, so Rachel is Israel and her children are the Israelites. Uh, Rachel is pictured as weeping because the children have gone into exile. But God says, you can stop your crying because I'm bringing them home. Verse 15. 31, 15. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. Your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. Tell you what, it's a much nicer message than we've seen so far, isn't it? This is a whole heap happier than the last 29 chapters have been. At last, after 40 years of preaching judgment, after all the terrible things he has said have come true, at last, Jeremiah has some good news. It's no wonder. Finally, he can get a decent sleep. Verse 26. At this I awoke and looked around. My sleep had been pleasant to me. It's like he's finally got his sleep apnea machine after years and years and years. And it's the first time he had a decent sleep in 40 years. But there's even more good news to come. God talks about the future. And he says that in the future, Israel are not going to suffer for their history anymore. They're not going to suffer because their ancestors, their forefathers, have broken God's covenant. He says, no, no, no. It's going to be about each individual before me. Verse 29. In those days, people will no longer say, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Instead, everyone will die for his own sin. Whoever eats sour grapes, his own teeth will be set on edge. And and then God explains further, there's going to be a whole new covenant. You know what a covenant is? It's kind of like, um, imagine like a marriage covenant where you make promises to each other and then a relationship is built on those promises. Well, God made promises to Israel. He said, if you will obey my law, then I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And they said, amen, we'll obey your law. And then they didn't do it. And so that first covenant was broken. And so because the fathers broke that covenant, it ended up coming you know, on their children and their grandchildren. Well, God says it's going to be a whole new deal now. He says it's not going to be like the old covenant anymore. It's not about you obeying the law anymore. No, in this covenant, God says, I'm going to forgive your sins and I'm going to change your hearts so you will know me, so you will know me and obey me. Verse 31. Time is coming, declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant 
with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Forgiven, given a new heart and established as God's people in a new covenant. Next two prophecies. God declares his everlasting commitment to the people of Israel. As long as creation continues, as long as the sun shines, he says, I will love Israel. Verse 35. This is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar, the Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, the sun, the moon, the stars, the ocean. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will the descendants of Israel ever cease to be a nation before me. And then in, in the very final prophecy, God says that a new Jerusalem will be built, a city that will never be destroyed. The end of verse 40. The end of verse 40. The city will never again be uprooted or demolished. Okay, can you see what's here in these two chapters? It's pretty special, isn't it? It's a series of prophecies that Jeremiah received that he had to write down around about 587 BC. It's after the destruction of Jerusalem and it's a vision for the future. God will bring Israel back from exile. He'll defeat their enemies, restore them to their land. They'll rebuild Jerusalem and the temple and the palace. God will raise up a king from the line of David to rule them. He'll make a new covenant with his people, one in which he forgives them all their sins and changes their hearts so they know and love him. And they will at last be God's people in God's place under his blessing and his rule forever. Now that's a magnificent vision. And in fact, the rest of the Bible is all about God fulfilling this vision. Uh, these prophecies were, were initially fulfilled in the year uh, 539 BC. The Persian Empire defeated the Babylonian Empire and they allowed the Jewish people for the first time in history to, to return as an exiled people to return from Babylon to Judah. Uh, that's what the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are all about. We see how the story of how they how they came back, how they rebuilt the temple, how they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. But we also see from the prophets of that time, prophets like Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, that, that this return was not the final solution. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, they say, yeah, this is fine, this is God keeping his promises, but this is not all there is, because there's still no Davidic king, and a great king is coming. And you people, you're still not changed, you're still sinful and selfish, and God's going to come and work in you by his spirit and change you. And so Israel waited, waited for their king, waited for God to come and change them by his spirit. And they waited and they waited and they waited. And then hundreds of years later, a man came and the people who wrote about him said that God's promises were coming to fulfillment in him. Matthew, do you remember? He quotes from Jeremiah about Rachel weeping for his children. Do you remember the story? Jesus goes into Egypt like Israel. Jesus comes back from Egypt. 
uh, Herod kills all of those babies. And then Matthew quotes from Jeremiah about Rachel weeping for her children. And he says, now is the time you can stop weeping because this man, Jesus, will bring you home. We see in the Gospels that Jesus was born into the line of David as the Messiah was supposed to be. We saw him live and preach and perform amazing miracles, declaring himself to be the Son of God and the King. And then Jesus died on the cross. And why did he die on the cross? Well, if you ask Jesus the answer to that question, he'll tell you because of Jeremiah 31. Do you remember? It all happened at the Last Supper. Jesus explained the significance of his death on the night before he died at the Last Supper. He took a cup of wine and he, he used the concept of Jeremiah 31. He said, this cup is the new covenant. Direct quote from Jeremiah 31. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus said, the reason I'm going to die on the cross is to make this new relationship with God possible, where you can be forgiven, where you can be transformed, where you can be God's people forever. Uh, and the writer to the Hebrews in the New Testament, he, he picks up Jeremiah 31 as well and quotes from it. Uh, as I said before, it's, in fact, it's the longest quote of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And, and the writer to the Hebrews, he says, he says, Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant promised in Jeremiah. He, he says he's the mediator because he died as a ransom to set God's people free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Jesus died so we can be set free from those sins so God can forgive us. So God can give us, the writer to the Hebrews says, Jesus now offers us, quote, the promised eternal inheritance. He died so we could be forgiven and so we could receive this promised eternal inheritance. And of course, that's not the end of the story, is it? Because God raised Jesus to life. He declared him to be the eternal king in the line of David, the Messiah who was promised. And God then poured out his Holy Spirit onto those who put their faith in Jesus. His Spirit, who in accordance with Jeremiah 31, changes our hearts. His Spirit, who changes our hearts now, so that we trust Jesus, so that we know God as our Father so that we strive to overcome sin, so that we long for heaven. His Spirit who changes us now, His Spirit who will finally change our hearts completely and transform us so that we won't sin anymore, so we can live with God in His eternal kingdom. Jesus established this new covenant for those who trust in Him. And now, through Jesus, we look forward to the most magnificent, wonderful fulfillment of these promises in Jeremiah. Jesus is going to return and every knee is going to bow to him and every tongue is going to confess that he is king and we will live as God's transformed people in his eternal kingdom of peace and righteousness. And all the things that Jeremiah talks about in chapter 30 and 31 are going to be ours. There'll be tambourines, there'll be maidens and old and young men dancing, there will be singing and dancing and joy, there will be no more fear, there will be no more sorrow, there'll be no more, there'll be no more enemies, there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. We will be serving our God and our King as his transformed people in a magnificent new heaven and new earth forever. Friends, I know this is old news. For most of you, I know this is something that you've heard maybe thousands upon thousands of times. I know this is nothing new, but let me just say this.
As far as visions for the future go, this is a pretty good one, wouldn't you say? This one is not bad. I mean, this, this beats being a computer's pet, wouldn't you say? This beats death and then nothing. This beats a world descending into chaos and decay and starvation. This beats a life after death that's just as miserable as the life before death. This is not an unknown future. This is not an unknowable future. This is not a scary and very bad future like Steve Wozniak predicts. As far as futures go, this is a very good one. Do you know what, friends? In Christ, this is our vision for the future. And it's not a pipe dream. It is guaranteed for us in the prophecies of Jeremiah. And we've seen over and over again that the prophecies of Jeremiah come true. It is guaranteed for us in the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is our vision for the future, our true vision. It's got to make a difference, doesn't it? It should change how we feel. We don't need to busy ourselves so much that we never get time to think about the future. It's all right to think about the future. We don't have to give in to despair or hopelessness. We can have a profound hope, a real confidence, a deep joy, even in the face of the sorrows and stresses and anxieties and problems of this life. This vision of the future should change how we feel. More than that, it should change how we live. I mean, surely, friends, if this is your eternal destiny... You can stop stressing about that stuff you're stressing about, can't you? Get it in perspective. If this is your eternal future, well, surely you should be focusing on the things that are going to be part of that future. People. People. God. Friends, is this your vision for the future? To, to be receiving an eternal inheritance, to be a, a transformed servant of Jesus in a new heaven and new earth... Is that your vision for the future? Can I encourage you tonight? Because I'm sure that most of you believe this. But can I encourage you? Most of you, can I, can I say to you tonight, just stop for a moment and go, yeah, of course I believe this. No, 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 no. Just stop for a moment. Hang on. I believe this. I actually, genuinely think that this will be me and us in the future. It's just wonderful, isn't it? Don't take it for granted. Let that vision fill you with hope. Let it drive your life because it is, it is true and it is magnificent. Let's pray. Our wonderful, magnificent, glorious Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the way that he has fulfilled the prophecies of Jeremiah. We thank you that he has died as a ransom to set us free from the sins committed under the old covenant. We thank you that through him we can be justly forgiven. We thank you that through Jesus you have poured out your Holy Spirit and you are changing us. Father, we pray, please send Jesus back. Please transform us completely. Grant that we might, we might have this magnificent future that you have promised us. Help us now to live in the light of it. 
with, with, with passion and with joy and with deep hope. We pray in Jesus' name.